Hey everyone, I'm Sima Kader, and you're listening to the MLOps Weekly Podcast. This week, I'm so excited to be speaking with Sam Ramji. He is the Chief Strategy Officer at Datastax, Datastax being the leading provider for commercial solutions of Apache Cassandra. He's a 25-year veteran of the Silicon Valley and Seattle tech scenes. He led Kubernetes and DevOps product management for Google Cloud. He founded the Cloud Foundry Foundation, and he helped build two multi-billion dollar markets, API management at Apigee and enterprise service bus at BEA Systems. He redefined Microsoft's open source strategy from extinguish to embrace. He's an advisor to multiple companies, including Dell, Accenture, Observable, Fletch, Orbit, OSS Capital, the Linux Foundation, and ourselves here at FeatureForm. He received his BS in cognitive science from UC San Diego and is still excited about AI, neuroscience, and cognitive psychology. He's kind of at the intersection of AI, databases, and more at his current role at Datastacks, and I'm really excited to be able to speak to him today. Sam, it's so great to have you on the podcast today. Oh, Sam, it's great to see you, man. I would love to start. I mean, I gave a quick uh, overview of, of what you've done, but maybe, like, I guess in your own words, like, what brought you to Datastacks? Like what made you want to work on this problem? You know, there's a couple of key things, and it was kind of my experiences at Google and then at Autodesk. So at Google, I was recruited to be vice president of product management for GCP because of the expansion of Kubernetes, right? They obviously needed a product management executive to look after a bunch of the businesses, but those businesses were basically doing fine. Like the compute engine business, it was virtual machines. There was a amazing business in Firebase that had been acquired and it was growing gangbusters. But the exciting challenge was Kubernetes. And that got me into DevOps and DevOps infrastructure, which was awesome. And I got to learn how my partner in crime, my engineering partner, Melody McFessel, who'd been at Google for about 14 years, had built a DevOps infrastructure that kept 44,000 engineers at Google super productive. But as we tried to figure out how do we take this to the world, we're like, oh, we're going to have to do this through Kubernetes. So Kubernetes is kind of the first big uh, factor. Kubernetes, of course, is designed for stateless workloads. And it's all about moving containers, immutable infrastructure, moving those things back and forth into and out of production and being able to scale up all these Docker-based workloads. Cool. Then I went to Autodesk where they needed a cloud platform for the world's largest engineering software company because it was no longer good enough to have desktop software doing all of your industrial automation. You needed to connect each desktop software user to another. You needed to be able to ask bigger questions about like, hey, is my motorcycle project on time? Knowing that you've got a dozen mechanical engineers working on it, how do you get that to tell you truth? Well, that's all about the data infrastructure. We brought Kubernetes to Autodesk, and that was awesome. Autodesk had already built out this big infrastructure for data built on Apache Cassandra. So I had already seen Apache Cassandra many years before the security infrastructure for tokenization, token management at scale for Apigee, which I had the privilege of being chief strategy officer. We took it public in 2015. So I had some experience with Cassandra, but it was way out of date. Seeing what the Autodesk folks were doing with Cassandra was mind-boggling because we had nearly a thousand nodes, I think, when I left, uh, five petabytes under management of the Cassandra ring. And it was all this live dynamic information connecting all these different applications and people, predominantly in construction, but also in mechanical engineering, supporting Autodesk Fusion. It was also way too hard. We had a dozen FTEs in the data team looking after Apache Cassandra, and some of them were making sure it operated properly, instrumenting it with Amazon Web Services, making sure that developers could use it, building SDKs, libraries, reliability kits, all these different things to use it properly. But the problem with doing that yourself 
means that you're not using those people to solve other harder problems. So I just felt Cassandra was so excellent, but it should just be easier to use. So then I got an opportunity to go work with a CEO who I'd worked with before at Apogee. He came to Datastax and we started talking and I said, Cassandra is awesome. And Cassandra plus Kubernetes could be really amazing because what if you can start to solve stateless and stateful workloads on the same core infrastructure? It can all be really smart. It can all scale really well. And you can do this in lights out operation. So if you're a microservices developer or whatever you happen to be doing, you can just kind of trust that the data is going to be there. It's going to be really fast. It's going to scale properly. That's what took me to Datastax. That's awesome. I love the, it's kind of like, you had this almost mission or initiative. It's like, hey, like, I guess I'm sure over time that's changed or it's expanded or, you know, different things are taking priority. How are you thinking about MLOps in particular? So MLOps, I think, is a fascinating field. There's so much value being created in machine learning. There's lots of ways to measure it. Obviously, there's lots of investment. There's lots of startups being created. There's lots of people getting jobs in the field. And you're seeing old line companies, train companies, home do-it-yourself companies installing like a chief ML officer or a chief AI officer. That's kind of when you know something is really coming into the world. MLOps itself, I think about kind of in three ways. You know, one is it's really, really early. When I look at the practices of MLOps, and obviously we're borrowing kind of the term from DevOps, MLOps sounds like it's maybe as mature as DevOps, but it's nowhere near. If you can imagine DevOps without Git, you would kind of go, well, what is that, right? We didn't have DevOps when we were all on CVS and Subversion because there was a linearity to the flow of how you used software that you didn't have the ability to rewind your whole infrastructure. You didn't think, oh, this sort of Git-based merge-pull structure enables me to test out things really quickly in production, take it forward, and if it blows up, rewind it. So that rewinding sort of capability is core to DevOps. That's what makes it safe to go fast. MLOps lacks infrastructure elements that would make it easier, like versioning of the data or sort of a rewind capability. And there's so many different ways people do MLOps. It's really diverse. It's all over the map. So that's one thing is it's early. The second thing is MLOps is incredibly valuable because it does create an environment where you can predictably make better decision engines faster. Every business is basically a decision factory. A hundred years ago, people thought of businesses as production factories, right? You make a part, you move the part along, you sell a product. But the vast majority of companies today employ most of their people as decision workers. So they're a decision factory. The really powerful stuff is businesses that have been built like TikTok or like Uber or like John Deere, which are automating decisions through the models that are being emitted. The quicker that you can update or improve the model, So let's take a look at Spotify's MLOps system, right? As they come up with a new feature that has maybe a 1% or 2% better conversion or affinity than the prior model that they had, they want to get that into production as fast as possible because if they can create a better conversion, better utilization, their whole business gets better because they have hundreds of millions of users. So it's the second piece is it's incredibly valuable because of sort of the scale at which most businesses are operating. And then I guess the third piece is it's disconnected currently from the full life cycle that we see that's needed to make companies really effective. So we've got DevOps, and that's running happily at speed with a lot of maturity for like microservices, right? Kind of backending all these apps that are getting powered. Then you've got data engineering, which is pulling data unwillingly out of microservices, right? You basically have to go and like poke a hole, 
pull out the data, ask the microservices team for help, or just take it right out of the infrastructure. And so data engineering is a really, really hard job because a lot of the feeds break. But once you've got that from data engineering, you're taking it in ideally to MLOps and giving it to data scientists in a way that can be really useful. But you're not done yet because then when the model's in production, you kind of need what often is called model ops because models break in production in ways that software doesn't because the two paradigms are so different. But the final piece is we haven't really linked model ops all the way back to DevOps. So if you think about this at an enterprise level or as an organization level, what's the latency between your ability to create a new insight that gets embodied in an automated decision model and get that into the user experience? In most organizations, that's really, really long. So that's, I think, the, the apotheosis of, of MLOps will be, let's say, five, six, seven years from now as it all gets really coherent, as it's no longer early, as the tools support rewinding. We'll end up checking out our total cycle time across the entire company from new model to user experience, and we'll try to get down to like a day. Currently, that's probably... I don't know, three to four months on average. So that's, I think, where we're going with the model, with the MLOps world. I had never really thought of the Git versus kind of subversion. I guess I never really thought of the fact that the way Git is designed is kind of part of what allowed, I'm sure, I mean, there's a lot of factors, like cloud became a thing, like there's a lot of things that kind of came together right around the same time, but it is interesting that it almost was like you needed the right abstractions to be able to build on. And so a lot of DevOps was kind of, an abstraction problem, like what is the right abstraction? Like how do we think about code changes? And all if we think of them as commits and we think of it as this kind of tree-like thing, like it's merged in and we have this, you know, whatever, then once we have that, we can build this idea of like this, each commit can have a build associated with it. Yeah, atomicity. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's interesting with MLOps, like one thing that I think of DevOps, you mentioned this like at Google, you can look at like Borg and you can look at all these things that they've been doing forever and think, wow, like even before DevOps was a term, like Google like knew how to do DevOps. Like Google was great at it. And my experience, and I'm curious if you have seen otherwise, but I have yet to meet a company where I saw what they're doing in MLOps. And I was like, wow, like this is what everyone should be doing. It's perfect. Where with like DevOps, I feel like there's a few companies that really had it nailed down and they were just sharing their learnings to the world. I think in MLOps, part of why it's been so I guess, chaotic a little bit in the early days is that there's so many different companies that have had such different approaches starting from different places and very little information sharing. So we just have completely different views of the world. Like there's really like a, hey, this is a gold standard and like, what's the gold standard but generic? It's like, there is no gold standard. So we're all just like figuring it out as we're going. Do you see that too? I do. And I think it's a much larger and much more complicated space. And I think it'll probably take us a lot longer to sort out. Here's what I mean. DevOps is really about computation, right? And computation is big, right? But it's bounded. MLOps is about cognition. And cognition is actually kind of unbounded. There's no limit to the number of new ideas you can have, new ways that you can analyze data, new ways that you can get the value, new things that you could choose to predict. Think about what is a feature, right? A complex feature is part of a multidimensional space that you can see patterns in through the power of like whatever you're using whatever Bayesian model or something that's, you know, generative adversarial, adversarial network or, uh, or a DNN or who knows what, you can suddenly get some kind of predictive power off of previously uninspected or uncorrelated dimensions. You can keep doing that for a long time. So the space of what we're doing with ML is cognition, and it's much bigger than computation. 
I'll make one path dependency point that you alluded to about DevOps. So yes, Git, absolutely essential because it changes the style of play of the development team. Subversion and CVS, they made branching easy. Very different problem, right? To say like, can I branch? Git was all about making merging possible. Merging was really hard. So this ability to merge quickly means that you can have a lot more change. You can have a lot more different people contributing and then you can bring it in. Then you mentioned Borg, right? So then in about 2007, 2008, Google contributed the core Linux capabilities that led to containers, right? Then you've got Solomon Hikes getting excited about that, coming over from France in 2009 and creating what would eventually become Docker. Then you've got Kubernetes picking up the ability to go and take Docker into deployment. And all along the way, you've also got technologies like Jenkins. So between your ability to contribute code through a Git model, your ability to package the artifact into a container, your ability to have a deployment pipeline through Jenkins, and then using something like Spinnaker or Kubernetes to be able to get those into production environments, there's a long path, and it took a lot of people a lot of time to practice a lot of things in a lot of messy ways to make what we now have today as kind of something pretty clean that you could almost buy off the shelf, as it were, right? You can kick up a cloud service. Any reasonable cloud service is going to give you a CI/CD environment that won't be terrible. And the practices of the DevOps community are well-documented. There's lots of YouTube videos. There's plenty of documentation. You can kind of get into it really quick. So I think the path ahead for MLOps is going to be really exciting. I think there's going to be a lot of activity and a lot of money in it. And there's going to be a lot of change over the next few years as this community of data scientists and data engineers and software engineers all come at business critical problems and try to figure it out really fast. So I'm pretty stoked to be an observer on the way. What do you see as like the DevOps versus DevOps analogy comes up a lot. We've heard it a lot, but I think a lot of people like remember early DevOps stages, but you were like a key player in it. Like you were like, a lot of Kubernetes, and it's almost like... So I guess my question is, well, firstly, I have a lot of places I want to go with this, but firstly, what do you see as like key similarities in the goal of DevOps and MLOps? Like how are they fundamentally similar? Fundamentally, it's about cycle, time, reduction, and predictability, right? So both of these things come out of the whole school of the Toyota production system developed sort of at post-World War II, W. Edward Stemming, and that whole concept of, that became called lean manufacturing. And when you start taking lean manufacturing ideas and you airlift them into software engineering, you end up with DevOps. And as you take those same ideas and you bring them into machine learning engineering, you'll end up with MLOps. So I think that's a core similarity. You're trying to eliminate waste. And we measure waste by saying anything that doesn't actually produce value is waste. Muda in the TPS terminology. And then you try to bring that down over time. So you've got concepts like Kaizen and Kaikaku. Kaizen is like your daily improvement. You can get 1% improvement per day. You get 1,000% a year. Kaikaku is kind of your breaking improvements where you suddenly have an insight. You say, we need to change the architecture. It's going to be really expensive, but we could get 1,000% improvement in one move. And then you've got the core, which is TAKT, T-A-K-T, right? The cycle time. You're always measuring your end-to-end cycle time and trying to bring that down as long as you can do it with that same very, very low error rate. I think that's kind of the core of anything that has ops in it. We should be explicitly saying we're bringing the spirit of lean manufacturing into the work we're doing. I really like that. And I like one thing that came up in a recent chat with someone from LinkedIn was this difference between, he was saying MLOps and ML infrastructure. He was treating them as different concepts. And I don't know if he was even like, had really. I think he just, in his head, that's how he did it. But that was unique. I think the same way about it. Because, like you said, like ops is an iteration problem. It's not a 
like infrastructure can help. Like you might need again, like those kind of those almost like the like the infrastructure to allow you to do such things, right? Like the Toyota example, it's like, well, like you need specific machines to be able to build a car. And if those machines get way better, then yeah, you can do it better. But that's not really the ops problem. The ops problem is more how do we get all of us to work together? How do we structure this kind of organization and workflow so that we can be as productive as possible? Absolutely. It's all about the workflow and it's about the team being in harmony. One of the beautiful things about the Toyota production system is that every single worker had a cord that they could pull that would stop the entire line. And so any cyclical defect would be analyzed immediately, right? The worker's job was to say, I got a piece that wasn't conformed to standards. Let me stop because that is a process problem. And so the entire factory floor would kind of converge on the station and everybody would work it out. Now it could take two seconds, could take two minutes, could take two hours, but they would stop and get that defect out. And then they'd go back to work. And so this is that kind of end process of you blame the process, not the people. And that's the core of it. We're all trying to make all of this go faster together. None of us is more valuable than each other. We're all trying to go far together, right? I love that. I mean, the way you put it, like it makes like, uh, I feel like a lot of that ethos that you're sharing has, feels like has been kind of lost when people think of like agile and, and that thing, which I mean, software is different, obviously, but I like the way you put it because it sounds like, it just sounds like a team I'd want to be on. Like That sounds like a cool, like, you know, like that sounds great. And I feel like, yeah, making things process oriented, not making them like every individual has like equal power, but it's not about the individuals. It's about like we, you know, it's not like, oh, we need the million smartest people. It's more like we need people who like want to be on this team, who want to work together, who like want to trust each other and, and be able to, again, like this make the best possible thing via the process. One thing we say here a lot, or I say to my team a lot, is like with some things like, let's say like finding product market fit, like it's not... You can set as a goal, but it doesn't mean, right? Like, I mean, like, it's not something you're like, oh, are we closer or less close? It's, it's a kind of binary thing to an extent. And one thing that I've come to the conclusion of this company, the last company, is the only thing you can really control is your habits. And so you just have to set up the right habits that will kind of optimize for getting there. And so we just kind of have to trust the process. We can come and change it. But as long as we execute and we kind of come up with a process that we think will get us there, like, that's the best we can do. I, I love it. I think that process orientation is how we've created the civilization we have today, right? It's science is about making things progressively less wrong, right? We have an idea. It's probably wrong. How can we make it progressively less wrong? And I think it's best stated by a uh, uh, quote often attributed to Thomas Edison. I don't know if it's apocryphal or if he ever, or if he actually said it, he said, uh, I haven't failed. I've fi- simply found 10,000 ways that don't work. That's awesome. Yeah, I've, I've found a lot of those. <laughs> and you know, anyone who's done a startup, I'm sure has. Let's bring it back to the DevOps thing. So we talked about, it's about process. It's about kind of giving the workflow to allow it to be. And I think that's like the first, I guess, like axiom of what I want to build to of like the DevOps versus MLOps. I guess the other thing is, why is it different? Why isn't MLOps just like a feature of DevOps? Why does it have to be its own category? This is where I want to take it back to that distinction between computation and cognition. So if you think about some of the work that was done, you know, even in the 80s to figure out how do we write better software, there was this idea that you could have provably correct code. And people came up with techniques like a pie calculus to be able to sort of do meta-analysis of the code and determine, like, are there any loops in it? Is the code going to kill itself? Is it probably right? And that is possible only in something as relatively bounded and tractable as computation. 
However, think about where we are today as a society. How many bad cognition examples can you think of in the first 10 seconds as I say it? Just think about what you saw in your social media feed, anything you read in the news, right? There's a whole bunch of bad cognition. Now, these are not human beings who are really any different from you or me structurally, right? If you were to analyze our genome, if you were to analyze the weights of our neural synapses of how we parse visual information, you would not be able to find any different basis to assess this person's got really strong cognitive outcomes, this other person's got really kind of flawed cognitive outcomes. So much of it is arising from data. What are we consuming? How do we determine that the data is correct? What happens when a feed of data that we trusted suddenly goes bad? These are really freakishly hard problems that we're really not conditioned to even have a good philosophical basis for managing. So there's so much almost basic research we have to do to say, what does it mean to have an MLOps defect? Was the model wrong? Maybe the model was totally great, but the data skewed. The data got unbounded. You got a bad feed in the data, and now you're trusting the model in production to feed your dashboard or to feed your content or people are seeing it directly. And so you don't have a production down problem like when you have a computation flaw and something fails and the system collapses. You have something worse. You have a silent failure where you're now putting garbage on the screen that your whole system is extremely confident is correct. So this, I think, is the piece that really freaks me out about MLOps. And I see people working on data observability and data monitoring, and there are all these tools that kind of come into it. But the fundamental nature of it is it's not computation, it's cognition. And the way that we think about data requires us to all be a hell of a lot more skilled around math. Projects like Great Expectations are great examples of how we can start to embrace a different part of math than we've had to when we were writing traditional computational software programs when we're dealing with systems like models that are coming out of inferential logic, right, that are learning the patterns in the data, how do we bound the expectations on the inputs? Those are all new competencies that we have to develop together. And the fact that it's new tells me, like, that's different about MLOps. I love the way you put it. I, I think it just clicked to me, like, that difference. And I think, yeah, the idea of it, it's coming from the data. I mean, a philosophical view of it would be, like, there's the, I don't even know, the story goes like, you know, let's say someone's in front of a judge and it's just like, hey, like, I couldn't do anything about it. Like, if everything is predetermined to an extent, like, then is it my, like, should I go to jail? Is it my fault? Or was it all the data, like all the things that happened to me that forced this? Like, I, there's nothing I could do. I was just a victim of circumstance of the universe. And it's kind of, uh, obviously, it's very different. But for the model, it's kind of similar. It's like, yeah, like, just did exactly what, you know, like given how it was wired and the data that went into it, the order went into it, and all these things, like that's just, it's almost deterministic, but it's deterministic in a way that's almost impossible to understand. You can't look at the weights and be like, oh, I'll just add 0.1 to that weight and boom, we're done. So that's that key difference. And it also makes regulation, everything's like hard. Like it sounds easy and nice, but like it's like, how do you even, the fact that you can't do it kind of leans to the whole like, what is correct in the model? Like, there's this thing as a perfect model. And we dealt with this, I dealt with this in my last company, we were doing recommender systems. And part of what drew me recommender systems specifically was with computer vision, like, there's a little bit more of a right answer. Like, you can look at a picture and be like, yeah, that's a bird or not a bird. But with recommender systems, there's no such thing as, like, the perfect recommender system or the perfect recommendation. And we would do things like, we would always make sure there's at least two models in production running A-B tests, because you also can't, if you, you can almost like for pigeonhole people, if you just have one. So you have to maintain like, because the thing you're really aiming for a recommender system is serendipity and serendipity isn't something you can like really measure. So 
yeah, and I think that's a but with like you said, like with DevOps and with compute and, and whatever, like most of the time you can kind of say, hey, you can write a unit test. You can't unit test a model. That's like maybe the cleanest way to like imagine it as someone listening to this is like think of how you would unit test your recommender system. And you're just going to be like, well, like, let's just make sure that it includes this recommendation, which is obvious. If it doesn't, then we should look at it. <laughs> like, that's the best you can do in some cases. So, yeah, I love that way of thinking about it. What do you, I guess, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I would just say it's another sign of MLOps being pretty early, is that our best solution to this is really to have a human in the loop. Right. We've gotten to the point in DevOps where we really don't worry about having humans in the loop. We have fuzz testers. We've even got AI-powered things like GitHub Copilot. Right. We've got security mitigation systems that will read the code, determine that there's probably a security bug, and automatically send you a PR, which you can accept, or that you can put it on autopilot, and it just automatically accepts the PR. Smoke tests it, looks against all the prior versions of the software, makes sure there's no regressions, puts it into production. And you can generally trust these kinds of systems in the computational environment. The human in the loop piece is a lot like how we used to do web testing 20 years ago. When we'd push live code to Ophoto, where I was director of engineering back in 2001, we'd make sure that we were all sitting using the software, that the product managers were all you know pushing transactions through the workflow to make sure that we hadn't broken anything because we, we didn't have that absolutely bulletproof automated system. So we do have to have humans looking at the sensibility. We're using cognitive experts, right, people, to look at the cognitive processes, the models, and make sure that they're still coming up with things that aren't stupid, wrong, or illegal. That makes a lot of sense. It's just like, yeah, we've made all this stuff. I mean, actually, you're also making me think, one reason why I love distributed systems, and for some reason it was like, to me, it felt like so obvious to go from distributed systems to machine learning, is that there's the same gray area problem of like, in a distributed system, like you can get to like it's correct, like Paxos is correct, like you can prove it. Most things are very there's a lot more gray area. There's a lot more well, like this could just cut this way, or this wire could cut off, or like you could lose this network connectivity, or it can come and come back. And like the problem space is way more to me was way more interesting because it felt more like alive in the same way that like a model like not alive and like <laughs> aware, but alive and like it's dynamic, very dynamic. And it just can't really be perfect. You'll always find some really crazy failure condition that will happen at the worst possible time. And we just, I think US East 2 went down yesterday from when we're having this chat and like all kinds of stuff went down. And like, these are companies that like know DevOps and do it well, but like, there's always something, there's always a big enough wrench that's going to take out this, take out the engine, you know? And sometimes it's a small enough wrench, right? And sometimes it's a component that is working with as specified. There's so much beauty and complexity, right? I think each of us as a human is kind of attracted to living things. And what you're saying about distributed systems is that they start to behave like living things. They don't have to be intelligent. They don't have to be conscious. But just being alive is kind of fascinating. You can watch the feeds. You can visualize the system. But you still have these unexpected consequences. One of the biggest outages in Google's history, as I understand it, I wasn't there at the time, happened in 2009. And what had happened was a common component that was pretty useful for a few different things called Stubby, S-T-U-B-B-Y, operated within its predicted bounds, right? It promised an SLO, I think, of like four and a half nines. So 99.995% uptime. But it was actually such an outrageously reliable component, it typically behaved at about six nines. So it turned out 
a whole bunch of engineers had just taken for granted that this thing was never, ever wrong. Nothing would ever go down that was in it. And they'd taken it as an unconsidered dependency. And so it was in all these systems that it probably shouldn't have been in, right? The code had leaked because it had just never caused a problem. There wasn't that anybody made a bad decision, but it was just like, there's air that you can breathe. The sun rises in the morning and Stubby is up. Well, <laughs> Stubby, Stubby fell to four and a half nights. And the cascading failures around Google were apparently spectacular. So as part of the new chaos testing system, you could call it, they started inducing faults into Stubby, even though it didn't have the need to fail, to periodically reduce it to its SLO rather than overperforming. And that ended up helping them in an ongoing way flush out these kinds of issues. But it's exactly that kind of just bizarre thing. Like, oh, this thing was working too well. And so the system <laughs> went down. And I'm sure that will, you know, if we were to do this again and, 10 years and talk about models, we would have the exact same story of like, yeah, this model was always right. Like it was such an easy machine learning problem. We just never assumed that this thing would be wrong. And then, yeah, we gave a completely wrong financial projection to our board because like this thing was completely wrong. And like, yeah, like turns out that, you know, if you give it this exact number, like it just happens to cause like this crazy number to pop out. And so you think about where ML is being deployed. You could think about that being a very practical problem people are having today. It's not crazy to put ML into loan approvals. What's happening right now with microloans and with some of the fintech companies that are breaking out of like sort of the old banking industry, you're like, hey, you know, you don't have to wait three days for loan approval. We'll give it to you in 30 seconds. How is that happening? Like that's almost certainly a model that is doing that. Like there's not somebody who's clicking yes and thinking through this every 30 seconds. That just ain't so. But what if all of a sudden, like a bunch of loans that it should have said no to over a process period of as little as an hour, it just said yes to them all. Like, how would you know? What are the consequences? How would you walk it back? What's the audibility? What's the accountability? What's the provability of where the data went bad? I mean, we will have this all solved in five or 10 years. But right now, I think it's a really exciting sort of cutting edge of real problems that frankly, when I studied artificial intelligence and cognitive science back in 89 to 94, we never anticipated that it would become like mission critical for an enterprise. <laughs> you remind me of, I had a conversation with someone who was the, actually at Google as well. He's very critical to kind of recommend their system stuff. And one thing he said, which I've always kind of known, but just the wording was, was really interesting, was he was like, yeah, building recommender systems, this is even just true Google search in general. It's like, we've been doing almost like, it's almost a GAN, except the generation is done by a model. The generative model is people. Like the people are the adversarial network because no matter what you do on the search engine, like someone's going to find a way to game it. And so this is kind of, so like the worst, the hardest adversarial model to take on is like human ingenuity because like, it's like, there's a whole sect of society that's like entire focus is like, how do I get top page on Google? <laughs> and like, they will, they'll think of unique things like that, like even a model would never have thought to try. So it's kind of giving me that same Feeling because it's like, oh, like I didn't think of it. There's also like, a, hey, like for a lot of these models, like from loan, like people are going to go out there and try to get them, like even though they shouldn't. And so you also have to deal with that. And how do you deal you with almost that? Need, you almost need data science for data science, right? So I got to work with Benjamin Trainer at Google, who is the father of SRE as a discipline. And as I learned from Melody McFessel to, about the tools that we built for the Google SREs, they look more and more to me like data scientist toolkits that were deployed to production problems. They're looking for outliers, right? They've trade these amazing different graphs. They're applying math to the logs to figure out what might go wrong or what had gone wrong. So that's kind of like data science for engineering. 
but to figure out like what happened wrong with your model, right? It takes one data scientist to build the model, but it might take another data scientist to look at the operational characteristics and figure out like, how would I know that somebody had gamed my loan model and that the predictions were wrong? So there's a lot of interesting stuff ahead like this. Yeah, I think so as well. I, I want to take a conversation somewhere a little different. One thing I think a lot about it, I just was, I'll give you like a little story background. I was at the MLOps happy hour thing. Something that came up a lot is like, wow, there's just so many startups in this space. And they were like talking about like, you know, that cloud of companies, which is true. There's a lot of companies in the space. But also, like, I remember looking at the MarTech map and like lots of the sales tech map. And I'm like, honestly, it's really not that bad. <laughs> like, they're, they're much worse. But I remember with DevOps, DevOps nowadays, like, you know, there are a handful of companies that are like the DevOps companies. They're all amazing. Like, we, all of them are public now and they're amazing businesses. In the early days, it was like, very similar, I think. It was like a wild, wild west. And Kubernetes is an example we can say is a winner. Like HashiCorp is an example. It's like a winner in that space, like GitLab. Like there's a lot of uh, examples of, of kind of projects and companies that won. And obviously I'm going to bring SAMLOS, but DevOps has played out. So we can kind of now look back and kind of backtest and see what worked and what didn't and why things happened. Why do you think it could be about Kubernetes, it could be about any of these companies, it could be about, you could just be about all the companies, but like, why did the winners win in DevOps? Like, why did it play out the way it did? Why is Kubernetes now like the tool? Because there's many other projects in that space. I think there are two key components. One is what we talked about before on technological path dependency, right? You could just as well ask, why didn't Docker Swarm win? Docker Swarm was out before Kubernetes, right? Why was it Kubernetes? So there's path dependencies that led to Kubernetes being successful, which is that they weren't trying to solve the container problem at the same time. And so they had the extra bandwidth to take all of their hard-won internal production practices from Borg, which they learned at scale, and do nothing but coop. So between a company that's trying to do two things and one that's trying to do one, you can always bet on the company that's going to just do one, right? So coop was going to end up being kind of that pure play. But the deeper answer is it's about the people. So when Ben Trainer explained SRE, he said, SRE is what you get when you deploy a software engineer into production operations. Because we don't want to sit at the command line and the ticketing desk and keep doing the same thing over and over again. Like you do that to a software engineer after their first eight-hour day, they'll turn in their resignation. But as software engineers, we're people who would rather spend 40 hours writing a calculator program than doing like four hours of homework. So it's all about automation. So what Ben and the SRE team learned was that you should really make sure that you're creating the programming affordances that you're creating the clean, clear interfaces that somebody who's a software engineer by mentality and an automation professional by job function is going to love. That is the thing that is also consistent about other things that people love, like HashiCorp, and it's the inverse of people things that people hate, like Jenkins. Like Jenkins is everywhere, but you'll never find anybody who loves it. And the problem there is the affordances in Jenkins are configurations. Like configurations are confusing as anything. They don't submit themselves to debuggers. There's no compilation errors, right? There's just all these kind of accidental problems of complexity that you just have to do by beating your head into a wall, right? So it's just like you accelerated the operations problem and made it hurt more. But, you know, you could kind of glue everything together. It kind of works. But Kube and HashiCorp, and I want to really acknowledge how amazing what Mitchell and Armin and Dave have built there is each individual piece was a lot like a Unix program, right? It was highly opinionated, it was a small piece, and it was loosely joined. And its affordances were pointed at somebody who had an engineering mindset solving an operational problem. And they didn't force you to adopt 11T7 things. 
They're like, you can just take this one thing. And you're probably using 117 other things, but just take this one thing. If it's working, great. And then they would build another thing that was not integrated in its technology, but it was integrated in its philosophy. So you have another thing that's pure and works really well and is open source and it can go really fast. So I think that sense of clustering around a particular user, right? An operations problem that's being replaced by automation, which is being written by engineers, that was a really clear market thesis of where this stuff would go. And then figuring out how do I just delight that engineer and give them more and more little pieces that they can bring into their tool belt. A lot of people in business talk about, oh, I want to get share of wallet. But I would say when you're trying to solve these problems, you want share of belt. (laughs) Is the tool on your belt? Do you pull it out 10 times a day? Do you really, really like it? That's what absolutely nailed it. And that was what the Kubernetes team got right. It's what HashiCorp got right about enabling those human beings in this moment of great stress and great technological transition. That's such an amazing way to, I think, yeah, the idea of the, a lot of people talk about find your problem and solve it. And what's interesting about HashiCorp is they don't solve one problem. They solve a set of problems, but they solve a set of problems that the same person would have. And they only tried to ever solve one problem at a time with one tool. It's super interesting when you talk about HashiCorp and the toolkit idea, because a lot of startup wisdom is find the problem and solve it really well. And with HashiCorp, like if you think of HashiCorp and you didn't know HashiCorp was an amazing business. And I was like, yeah, it's this company. They have like nine open source tools and they're like loosely tied together. Like, yeah, do you want to like give them a hundred million bucks for your new, next round? You'd be like, uh, no, <laughs> like that sounds like not a business that's going to be amazing. Obviously it is. And it's because rather than thinking about one problem, we're thinking about one person and the set of problems they would have. And there's so much power in focusing in on a community, one member at a time, where that community is, no community is homogeneous, but there's a solid core. And so the point that I would kind of drive all of our listeners towards is product market fit is not abstract. You might think about it smaller as tool user fit. Does the user love the tool? If so, you create an amazing window for your company. Because let's compare HashiCorp with their logical inverse. So what is HashiCorp? It's a range of tools. They're all open source and they're targeted openly at anybody who's trying to do operational automation in this massive transition to cloud-based distributed systems. Snowflake has no open source, massive company, super cloud, right? And does a whole range of data warehousing, business analysis, business intelligence, at scale. It's 100% proprietary. It's marketed, it's sold, it's led in sort of a very classic enterprise fashion. But what they have going for them is the system actually works. The product works, it scales, it's cost effective, and it really satisfies those business analysts that were let down by the prior era technology. Both companies, the proprietary one and the open source one at IPO, were valued at 52x revenue, which if you study startups, is mind-boggling. It represents so much confidence on the part of the investment market that those companies have not just good, not just great, not just outstanding, but spectacular growth opportunities. I think we can take a lot of heart in the fact that this open-source, community-oriented, technical practitioner-centric company had one of the best valuations of all time and is performing outstandingly. So the more we satisfy people, the more openly we do it, the better longitudinal business expectations we can have. And that's why we have the opportunity to build these great companies today. I just, yeah, I mean, the Snowflake was just HashiCorp. Like, it's interesting that, like, yeah, you're right. Like, Snowflake is kind of, I mean, it's not the opposite of HashiCorp, but it is, in many ways, the ethos of it is very different. 
And I think for MLOps, like there are a lot of companies that are building the Snowflake style. Like they're proprietary, they're big, they're platforms. And there are a lot of companies that are building the HashCorp style. I think like we're doing that. We have that virtual feature store idea. I mean, even that name, Ter- uh, feature form and Terraform. There's an, even that, like there's some parallel. I think what's interesting is to think about what those companies' IP is. Like what really makes that company unique? And Snowflake isn't, it's a drop in replacement. It's like we have better tech than everyone else. Like we just work out the box better. It's still using SQL. You're pretty much doing everything the same way, but we is just a better engine for you. And for HashiCorp, their IP is not, I mean, sure, like what they build is extremely hard to build. Don't get me wrong. But I think the IP is more the abstractions they build and the interfaces they build. Kubernetes too, right? Like obviously Kubernetes is not an easy product to build, but why, you know, you mentioned before, like the interfaces, that's what won out. And the interfaces kind of come from, sometimes it's individuals. One, it's an individual's problem. It's not a group problem. You can't throw 500 engineers and build a better Kubernetes. Like it just, you need like those few people who just get it and they like build the right interface. You can't really scale the interface building problem. And it's being opinionated where you need to be opinionated and not where you don't. Kind of giving the configurability where it makes sense to and being very opinionated where it doesn't. It also, in DevOps, everyone does it so differently that like you don't want a platform. You want the ability to kind of fit it to yourself. And machine learning, what we've seen, like if you're doing computer vision or you're a bank, fraud detection or you're a small company also doing fraud detection, but you're like a hundred person startup, like there isn't a platform that can satisfy all three of those people without being and Jenkins style, like this awful to use. Is that a fair like takeaway on what you said? I really think it is. I think to summarize, I'd say there's something almost magical about the ability to engage a large community with a piece of technology that you can iterate very rapidly. So if we were to reconceptualize HashiCorp, I think it's not a corporation, it's a community. So if you said, what is HashiCorp? Who is HashiCorp? It's every HashiCorp employee. It's every piece of their software. And it's every user of their software. And if you conceptualize it that way, you could strongly say, what's their IP? No organization on the planet knows cloud operations better than HashiCorp. That's super powerful because the connectedness of all the humans, the cycle time reduction of getting that software out in the open, used repeatedly, it makes the interface better and better, faster and faster. And then you end up with this kind of beautiful merge where the user and the tool boundary disappears. Sam, this has been such an amazing conversation. I feel like we could go into so much more. We might have to pull you back on and have another one of these, but thanks so much for hopping on and having this conversation with me. It's such a privilege to talk with you, Simba. I really appreciate it.